Uh, and so the organisers are looking for uh, some sort of feedback, both positive statements, of course, but also things that we can do to improve it. If you saw something or uh, noticed something, and it'd be good to give that sort of feedback. So as it says there, thoughts, ideas, encouragement, and so on. And there are various ways that you can do that. You can see on the screen there is a, uh, a website that you can go to, fill it in electronically. But there is also, for those of you who are not into doing it that way, there are hard copies available of the feedback forms. They'll be in the foyer, on the table in the foyer. If you just grab one of those at the end of the service and <laughs> fill it in, drop it in the box that's provided for that, that'll be very, very helpful. Thank you. You've got details about our Christmas Day services. It's uh, Tuesday night, 7.30, I think it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is here. Uh, it'll be a, about for an hour service. And then following morning, Christmas morning, we have an 8.30 service, again, for around about the hour. And it's a great time for you to bring family and to bring neighbours and friends and whatever and to pray for them, your neighbours as well, to invite them to come and hear. I'm going to speak on one verse this year. I'm speaking Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and I'm speaking on 1 Peter 1, 3. Maybe a bit of verse 4. It's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us a hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's going to be a straight down the line middle gospel message and it'll be a great time, opportunity for you to bring your friends and family to come too. Um, next Sunday, the 29th, we have our baptismal uh, services on the last Sunday in the year. There's none at, uh, no baptisms at the 8.30 service. It'll be our normal service, but then the beginning of the 10.30 service and then I think also at the 6.30 service, we're going to have Mandarin and English people being baptised. So that's terrific, up to about, I think it's about five or six young people and adults being baptised. So you might want to hang around and watch and participate in that. And then through the month of January, we are going to try and fill our services with uh, visiting speakers. They won't be entirely visitors. We tried to do that. And I've asked them to come and to preach the best sermon they preached this year. So whatever sermon they preached, wherever, whatever church they're in, uh, what was the best sermon they thought they preached or the best response they got for them to come and preach that here. I thought that was a good idea. Um, and it lightens my load just for that month as well. I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer. We're going to pray this morning via suggestions. I'm going to suggest some things and then you can uh, share your own thoughts, feelings and desires with the Lord and then I'll close off at the end. Firstly, what do you have this week to be thankful to God for? Think about them and then express your thanks to him. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done, all that you have revealed. Receive and hear, and hear the thanks of your people. What burden do you have? What's concerning you? What's troubling you? What are you struggling with? Let's bring those to the Lord. You invite us, Lord, to cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. Let's pray for those in authority over us, for our politicians and our governments, for 
our police at this very busy time of the year, for our bosses, pray for those in authority over us. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign Lord and that you place an authority over us, uh, people and organisations that provide stability into our world. We acknowledge that not all in authority over us are righteous or just or fair, but that you, the sovereign God, have a way of working your purposes out. So our eyes look above them to you. And we ask, Lord, that at this Christmas time, you might continue your work of revealing Jesus to people, to lost people, to sinners, that they might come into a saving relationship with you through him. To that end, Lord, we pray for our services, especially our Christmas services, and ask for your presence, for your anointing and your blessing, and ask that you might be pleased to bring people to faith in Jesus. We thank you for our carol service just gone. And Lord, bring to our minds, refresh our memories, that we can provide helpful, constructive feedback that things might be done once again and even in a better way to your honour, to your glory and to achieving your purposes. So Lord, we find ourselves right here, right now, in, with your people in your presence, asking again that you would speak to us, remind us of truth and have it reminded us, help us, Lord, to be shaped by it, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you and that are helpful for others. We ask and pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. To read to you from Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me there. It's always good to have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, whether it's a hard copy or whether it's electronic, doesn't matter, your choice. But it's always good to have a Bible in front of you so that you can either look up scriptures that are quoted or check the scriptures as we are preaching and teaching them. So that's a very healthy, good habit. Have. I want to read to you this very familiar story, and particularly at this time of the year, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It's about the birth of Jesus, and it's from Joseph's perspective. We, uh, I'll take a few minutes to talk through this passage this morning, but we come to the end of the series that we started, I think, back in November, talking about who is this man, who is Jesus. And so we've been on a journey for about four or five weeks or so. And we find ourselves this morning coming to the conclusion of that, that he is Lord and he is Saviour. We're going to talk about those truths. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and I'm reading from the NIV. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to that son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Passage says, <clears throat> in a strange phrase, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. We all know how births come about. So there's something unusual about this birth, which is why the author, Matthew, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that phrase. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, because it's not normal in some senses. It says that his mother, Mary, <clears throat> was pledged or betrothed to Joseph. Back in that culture and in those days, in our culture, boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy by girl enragement ring, uh, boy goes to father on Father's Day and says, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Father says yes, and they get married on March 16th. Oh, that's my story. <laughs> Something like that happens in our world, isn't it? Jesus' world, it was different. Jesus' world, parents would arrange the marriage. The parents of Joseph would arrange for, with the parents of Mary for their son Joseph and their daughter Mary to be married. It was an arranged marriage. <clears throat> it went from this sort of arrangement process to an actual date when the betrothal started. We don't have that in our world. But it's like the engagement, only it was even more committed. You can get engaged and you can break an engagement and that can have some legal consequences to it. But in Jesus' world, when you hit the betrothal point, when you were betrothed, you couldn't break it. The only way to break it was legally. It was a divorce. Once you were betrothed, you were even called husband and wife. You weren't yet married. You were betrothed but you were committed and about to enter into a covenant together. Once the betrothal started, the husband would then start the responsibility of building the family home. He would often go away and build a place, and then at some indeterminate time, there was no date set, it was rather about 12 months from the betrothal, he would return. And when he returned, he would take his betrothed wife and then take her back to his home. And that was the wedding process. And then they would have a celebration for a week, and then they were married. That's the analogy Jesus uses likewise. He is the bridegroom, and he has gone away, and he is building a house. And when he returns, he will take us to be with him forever. You can see the analogy, can't you? So the passage is saying to us that Joseph and Mary are betrothed. We've hit that point in the relationship. And Joseph is now off building a house. But while he is off building a house somewhere, um, Mary has a visit, Luke tells us, from the angel Gabriel, who informs her that she is going to be made pregnant by the act of the Creator in her life. And that's exactly what happens. And our passage says to us, um, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before he returned to take her home, she was found to be with child. He's off building the house and he hears the rumour, he has the evidence, she's pregnant. And he assumes, obviously, that she's been unfaithful. So he went through the process. He was a righteous man. He was a godly man. He wanted to do the right thing. He, could, he had two options. He could do it publicly. He could announce to everybody for his own self-preservation of his own reputation that it wasn't him 
that he hadn't broken the covenant vows, he hadn't been acted inappropriately, he hadn't been unfaithful to what the standards were, that he was innocent and he could declare that before a public court to her great shame. Or his second option, he could also do it just before two witnesses, quietly. He could divorce her legally. And that's what he chose to do. He wrestled with it, the passage says. It says he considered this. And eventually he came to a point of resolution. He resolved to divorce her quietly. But having made the resolution, the passage goes on, and after he considered this, he's still wrestling with it. He has a dream. And in the dream, an angel of the Lord comes to him. Same angel, same message, comforts him greatly. Don't fear, Joseph, to take Mary as your wife. She is pregnant and she hasn't been unfaithful. The Creator has done something very special in her and will do through her. She's going to give birth to a son. You're going to have a son. And I want you to call him the name Jesus. Important name. And the word, the name Jesus means saviour. He will save his people from their sins. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus is our saviour. Matthew or the prophet, uh, the angel goes on to say, verse 22 and 23, uh, this fulfills God's word through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son. It won't be any normal son or ordinary son. It's going to be Emmanuel. Jesus is going to be God with us. The above us God of the Old Testament is going to be the with us God in the person of Jesus and is going to be the in us God of the experience of Christianity by his Holy Spirit. He is Lord. He is Jesus the Saviour and he is the God who is with us. He is Lord. He is our Lord and our Saviour. In the person of Jesus, God brings salvation into our world and Jesus saves his people we all need it because we have all sinned and the highlight of Matthew's story this passage Matthew 1 is that God is with us you read through the Old Testament every time God delivers and rescues his people he again restores a relationship he is with them that's the highlight God uh, most dramatic Old Testament deliverance is through the Exodus and God takes his people out of Egypt Saves them through the Red Sea, brings them to Sinai and establishes a covenant with them where he builds, gets them to build a tabernacle so he can dwell with them. Saved to be with us, reconciled. So in the person of Jesus, the pinnacle of his salvation is relationship restored. The curtain, kemp, the temp, curtain in the temple is sent, uh, divided into, rendered at his crucifixion, at his death. The way is open. We are welcome and we can go in. Relationship restored. That's what it's about. That Jesus is, in fact, the only way. I know you know these truths, but I'm reminding you of them and hopefully refreshing your mind. And I pray, my prayer is that God would use us with these truths in these next days and weeks to talk to others who are yet to experience this wonderful God that we know and love. God wants us to know who he is. So he came, in the per he came in person, in the person of Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God. To know what God is like, look at Jesus. God wants to meet us. And he sent Jesus to make the introductions. That's what it's about. I've used this analogy before. If you wanted to know someone of great importance and you wanted to know them personally, what could you possibly do? 
Kate and Dan are going to England, January, for the next 30 years or something. Three years or so. I guess when they're there, they'd like to meet the Queen. Kate, oh. <laughs> if, who would you have on your list? Would you like to meet the Prime Minister? Would you like to meet the President of the United States? Pick any one of those three. The Queen, the Prime Minister, or the President of the United States. If you want to meet them, how could you do it? Could you write them a letter? Will they get it? Would they answer it? Probably not. Could you ring them up? Where would you find their phone number? I don't think it's in the book. So you can't send them a text, you can't send them an email. You could get a big sign, couldn't you? And you could stand out the front of Buckingham Palace when the Queen was in, or you could go down to Canberra, or you could go to the United States to stand out the front of the White House with a big sign. You know, dear Queen, or dear Tony, or dear Mr President, or whatever your sign says, I would like to meet you. You could hold the sign up and hope that they would respond as they went out. Don't think that'll work. Or you could try, you could get in your car and drive to their front door. Hmm. Good luck with that, you'll probably get arrested. If you wanted to meet those people personally, you have one chance, and only one chance. Well, I'll change that, I'll give you two chances. First chance, they have to initiate it. They would want to meet you. They would have to initiate the contact. And the second chance associated with that is they would probably have someone arrange that for them. So some, one of their friends or one of their close contacts would be in touch with you, saying the Queen or the Prime Minister or the President of the United States wants to meet you, wants to spend time with you. And then if you, they don't invite you to their place, they would be leaving their palace, their White House, their lodge, whatever, and they would be coming to visit you. That's exactly what God has done. God has taken the initiative. God does want to meet you. And he sent Jesus to be the one to make the introductions. He has come and he says, God loves you. God wants to meet you. God wants you restored to a relationship with him. That's what Christmas is really all about. And God wants us, God wants everybody to get this. He wants everybody to get it so much that he wrote it in a book. The most popular book in the world in terms of the numbers printed. There are copies everywhere. You've got copies. There are copies in bookshops, copies in libraries, copies in hotels and motels, copies everywhere. Copies translated into all languages, and of course I'm talking about the Bible. And in that book, the one translated into nearly every language in the world, for the first seven-ninths of the book, the Old Testament, he's talking about the one who is to come and describes him in great detail so that when he comes, he'll be recognised. The Old Testament predicts that he'll be a prophet, that he'll be a priest, that he'll be a king, that he'll be a sacrifice, that he'll be a judge, that he will come to conquer. The Old Testament even predicts it narrowing down. He'll come from this nation, he'll come from this tribe, he'll come from this family, he'll be born in that place. And this is what he'll do. He'll perform miracles. The blind will see, the lame will walk, Isaiah 35. He will die, he'll be buried, he'll be buried with both the poor and the rich, but he will rise again from the dead and he will, from the dead and he will ascend and he will rule and reign. All of that's in the Old Testament, looking forward, predicting. And when he does come, in the last two ninths of the book, when he's finally here, 
then God goes to great lengths. He gives us four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to get the story, to say, this is him. This is what he is like. This is what I am like. God wants us to know him. And he sent Jesus to make the introductions. In fact, we've been talking about who is Jesus. And it's interesting. If you look at the beginning of each of the Gospels, this is opinion, and it's not fact. Scholars look at this and they come up with different opinions. But this is probably the most common or the most accepted opinion. But let me underline again, it's not fact, it's just the most widely received opinion. Mark's gospel is the one that is written first. How does Mark begin his gospel? He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When you look at the life of Jesus and you want to know what he's like, then it begins with Isaiah the prophet who makes a prophecy 700 years BC about a coming of a man called John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness. Jesus is the person whose ministry begins with John the Baptist. And he goes on to talk about, and we'll look at some of Mark's teachings this morning about Lord and Saviour. Matthew comes to write his gospel and he says, no, 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 no. That's true. Jesus does begin prophecy of Isaiah and John the Baptist, but he actually goes back before that. So Matthew begins his gospel by saying, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who was the son of David, who was the son of Abraham. He goes back before Isaiah and way before John the Baptist. He goes back to David and he even goes back to Abraham. That's who Jesus is. And Luke writes his gospel. And he writes his certainly after these two. And he says in, John chapter, in Luke chapter 3, he says Jesus began his public ministry when he was about 30 years of age. Mark is right that it, his public ministry started with John the Baptist. Uh, but Matthew, he goes beyond Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. But in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, it also says he is the son of Adam. He goes right back to the very beginning. He is fully human. Luke is wanting us to get the message, and that's what his gospel underlines. Fully human. And then, of course, the last gospel, John's gospel. He says, fellas, that's all correct. But in fact, Jesus goes back even before Adam. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, while fully human, is eternal. He pre-existed before he became human. He is God. He is Lord and God. He is the Son of God. God wants us to understand fully who Jesus is, because God wants us to know him. And he sent Jesus to make the introductions. <clears throat> Dictators and national rulers often take titles that belong to the sovereign one. The Roman emperors, the world in which Jesus was born and grew up, the emperors came to take titles like Son of God, Saviour, Lord, and some of them, even God, to be worshipped. Son of God, Virgil, the Roman poet, says, a new breed of men has come down from heaven in our emperors, sons of God, the saviours and lords. And then Jesus comes along and his followers and the Christians started spreading around the world and they started declaring that there is a higher authority than the emperor. There is a higher authority than the emperor. It sounded like treason to the Romans. So the Christians were hounded, tortured, 
executed. But the gospel writers have written to provide evidence for the truth of the claim of what the early Christians were declaring. There is a higher authority. There is a higher authority than the Roman emperor and his name is Jesus. And he is Lord and he is Saviour. In fact, both Matthew, Mark and Luke, all three of them, at the heart of their gospel is a key question that Jesus asks himself. He says, who do you say that I am? And both Matthew and Mark and Luke tell their story to such a point where it rises to that question and once that question is answered, then the gospel story starts to descend. The story takes over of going to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die and rise. But it's the transition point in the first three Gospels. Who do you say that I am? That's our question. That's my question to you. Who do you say I am? That's a great question to ask your loved ones who don't know Jesus. Who do you think Jesus was? And just listen to them and find out. And then if you get the opportunity, ask another question. Plant a seed. Help them to think through who was Jesus the most important person who has ever lived, the most significant man to have influenced our race, human history. John, in fact, concludes his gospel, John 20, verse 31, by saying, I have written down all of these things that Jesus said and did. There are lots more I could have written, but I have selected these so that you might believe that he is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. God used four authors because he wants us to get it. He wrote to Jews, he wrote to Romans, he wrote to Gentiles, he wrote to those who were philosophical and theological, he wrote to those who were ordinary and to the social outcasts, he wrote to everybody. They wrote to the religious and they wrote to those who struggle with religion. God wants everybody to get it, including you. Who is Jesus? He is Lord with authority and he is Saviour. Let me take a minute and talk about those two things. Or several minutes. <clears throat> Jesus taught with authority. In Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, talks about how he went to the synagogue and when he stood up to speak, the people then said, uh, concluded, they were amazed at his teaching. Because he didn't teach like anybody else. He didn't teach by quoting other authorities. He taught with his own authority. He just gave his own opinion. He was clear, sometimes puzzling, But he was certainly challenging and he was consistent. What he taught is how he lived. Jesus taught with authority because he's Lord. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has authority over diseases, over sicknesses. It's like in a side story, Mark 1, 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to the house of James and John, uh, with James and John, to the house of Simon and Andrew. It says Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of this fever. Passage goes on. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all of the sick and others, demon-possessed. Whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed all of them. Jesus healed many who had various drove out demons. He wouldn't let the demons say who he was. Jesus has authority over sicknesses. And he still does because he is Lord. He helped the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk. Read the first eight chapters of Mark and you'll get story after story. He healed by touch of his hand. He healed by word of mouth. Just by simply saying, be healed. And people were healed. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over nature. 
over disasters. This is a remarkable story. At evening, he got his disciples get into the boat and row to the other side. As they're going across, this magnificent storm descends upon them, a furious squall. The waves broke over the boat. It was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up, panicking. Keecher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up. He rebuked the winds and the waves. And he simply says to them, quiet, be still. And then the wind dies down and it was completely calm. He has authority. It's amazing. When you think about it and you let the truth of it grab you, the authority that Jesus has and can have over your life and through your life. He can change your life. Whatever you struggle with, he has the authority and the power to change it. He is sovereign Lord. And just to remind you, you have seen, I'm sure, winds and storms on the beach or at sea. And the waves are heaving up and down. And when the wind stops blowing, it's not sudden peace. The waves continue to ascend and descend. They keep going. And it takes a while before the sea settles. This miracle is saying Jesus was in the boat and he stood up and he said to the wind, be quiet. said to the waves, be still. And there is this sudden change. A sudden change. That's what spooked the disciples. Who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus has authority and power over nature. I've already alluded to this truth. Jesus has authority and power over demons and over death. Next chapter, Mark 5. He heals this man who's got legions of demons in him, the Gadarean demoniac. Restores him to sanity and to his sane mind and sends him home. Go and tell your loved ones and family and neighbours what I have done for you. He can deliver from the demonic. We are powerless before them, but not Jesus. And even death, this same chapter, Mark 5, talks about the beautiful story of where Jesus is summoned by a dad whose daughter is very sick. She's aged 12. His name is Jarius. <clears throat> and she's sick, and Jarius comes and says, can you come and heal my daughter? And on the way, Jesus gets delayed. And there's another lady and another healing and in the process of that delay, some servants come to him from Jairus' house and says, don't trouble the teacher anymore, your little girl has died. And Jesus looks at him and says, don't be afraid, just keep believing. Jesus journeys on to the house, gets to the house, they inform him the little girl has passed away, and then Jesus says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. They thought that was ridiculous. They even laughed at him, the Bible says. Then he commanded them to leave and get out, and he just left three of his disciples, Peter, James and John, with him in the room with her, probably mum and dad as well. And he simply speaks to her. Little girl, get up. And she starts breathing again and she gets up and Jesus says, give her something to eat. And he commands them, don't tell anybody what you have seen me do. He is Lord over death. And Mark wants us to hear the story that he is Lord over your death. That it's just as easy for Jesus to raise a girl who is asleep, someone who is sleeping, so he can raise those who have died. He can bring them back to life. And the Bible says one day he will. 
everybody will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who believe will rise to life. Those who have not believed will rise to judgment. Jesus has authority over death. And finally, and significantly in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That's our biggest problem. Disease is not our biggest problem. It's painful and it's awful. And terrible things happen. We're all saddened by it and we don't like it. That's not our biggest problem. Other struggles and disasters from nature, not our biggest problem. Problems with people, relationships severed, not our biggest problem. One day, someday, we will die, not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is what the Bible calls as sin. It's that which separates us from God. The relationship is severed because of the choices we have made. That's our biggest problem because death, physical death when it comes will reveal another death, a spiritual death which is far more significant that we have been separated from God that outside of Jesus we are right now separated from God spiritually that one day physically we will die but then we will be eternally separated from God that's our biggest problem and that's why God wants us to know him that's why he sent Jesus because Jesus will save his people from their sins our biggest problem. That's what he came to do. And in Mark chapter 2, there is that incredible story. It couldn't be any plainer. You have to be, and you would be, spiritually blind to not get it. And I don't mean to be rude or offensive, but just factual. If you don't understand this passage, then God still has to open your eyes, soften your heart to believe the truth of it. There is a paralyzed man and four friends come to bring him to Jesus and there's too many people and they can't get in. They must have been discouraged. They must have been heading home. One of them comes up with an idea. Let's go up on top of the roof. Let's pull the tiles off. Let's let this guy down right in front of Jesus. They do. And you can't imagine the scene. You're in a crowded room. It's like this room. Imagine someone started taking the tiles off and tiles are floating down and dust is flying down. What are we doing? Are you paying attention to Jesus? I doubt it. He'd be looking up at the hole in the roof. Wazza would be out the door and up on the roof. He'd be jobbing somebody who's up there. <clears throat> this went on. Eventually the hole is made big enough. The guy comes down, lands him right in front of Jesus on a, a mat that they're lowering down on ropes. And Jesus looks up, sees them, is grateful, I'm sure, sees their faith, looks at the guy on the, on the mat who's paralysed, and Jesus says to him, Everybody would be expecting your heel stand up and walk. He doesn't. He doesn't address the disease issue. He doesn't address the deformity or those issues. He addresses the biggest issue, his sin. And he says to this guy, son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, who does Jesus think he is that he could forgive somebody for their sins? It's a very strong claim. <clears throat> Because all sin is against God, and therefore God is the one who must forgive sins. No one else can say, your sins are forgiven. Only the sins you committed against me can I forgive. But all sins are against God, and so only God can forgive. That makes sense, doesn't it? If I go over here now and smack Dan, my son-in-law, he deserves it every now and again. 
And Kate says, that's okay, I forgive you. Is that appropriate? Doesn't work, does it? Dan is the one who has to forgive me because I'm the one I hurt him, not her. So too with God. That's what Jesus is trying to provoke. Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders reflect on that and they get it right. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus, Bible says, verse 8, knowing their thoughts, turns to them and says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, verse 10, so that you may know that I am God, so that I have the authority to be able to say that because I am the one whom he has sinned against, so that you might know that. He turns to the paralysed man and he says, before he does that, he says, which is easier to say? Which is easier to prove? Son, your sins are forgiven you? Or rise up and walk? Which is easier to prove that I have authority? And it's clearly the physical, visible one. So Jesus is saying, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, walk. And he does. He stands, he's walked, he's healed miraculously, immediately. We're not told how long he was paralysed. If he was paralysed all of his life, he's not only healed physically, he's healed mentally. All of that knowledge about training and movement is imparted to him immediately. He rolls up his mat and he walks. Who is this man, Jesus, who has such authority? That's the point. That's the conclusion we are to reach, that Jesus is Lord and that he is to be our Lord. Conclusion, Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he went to the synagogue, as he did each week, and many who heard him were amazed. The people, the crowd, the people from Nazareth, his town, the people who knew him. And we're not talking about thousands of people, we're talking hundreds of people. We're talking people who knew him. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. They knew Jesus, or they thought they did, and they refused to come to the correct conclusion of who he was, that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God. And verse 6 says, And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. What's your response? Or will Jesus be amazed at your lack of response of how come you don't get it? The phrase, Jesus is Lord, is so easy for us to say. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, a remarkable thing, verses 2 and 3. Writing to the people who are now Christians, but who before, obviously, weren't, were pagans. He says to them, you know that when you were pagans, before you were Christians, uh, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. You were under some sort of spiritual influence, some sort of prompting. Um, and so therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say, Jesus is Lord. And Paul obviously does not mean uh, Jesus is Lord, just saying the words. Anybody can say words. What he means is, say it, mean it, and believe it. Say it, mean it, and believe it. If you can say, mean, and believe Jesus is Lord, that's an indication the Spirit of God has been at work in you because it is not natural to draw that conclusion. 
It's a spiritual opening, a spiritual insight. God has opened your eyes. Jesus took his disciples up onto a mountain, asked the question, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my heavenly father has revealed it to you. You only get to know who I am because God has been at work in your life. Has God been at work in your life? Do you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Well, if you do, three things. One, if Jesus is Lord, then that requires the surrender of our wills to him, to make our lives available to him because he is Lord. Not simply in statement, but meaning it and believing it. It's what Paul says. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, what God has done through Jesus, let's offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, which is our only reasonable response, our reasonable worship. If we do that, we're going to make a discovery. We're going to discover that in living fully surrendered lives to Jesus, we will discover God's will is good, that it is pleasing, and that it is perfect. Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? Begin here. Surrender your life to Jesus, fully available to him. And then you will experience and discover God's will working out in your life. That's number one. Number two, if he is Lord, then we ought to do as he commands. Luke 6, 46, Jesus complains, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? If we call him Lord, then we bow the knee. Lord, whatever you say, I will do. Tell me what you want me to do. But ahead of time, I'm going to do whatever it is. I think sometimes God doesn't tell us what he wants us to do because that hard attitude is not there. And God's not going to tell us what he wants us to do if we are not already committed to doing it. He's waiting for this attitude, this response, this submission to him as Lord. And then thirdly, if he is Lord God, the one we've been talking about, then he is worthy of worship and adoration. He is the one to be exalted. He is the one to be loved. He is the one to be completely followed. He is Lord. I still have a few minutes. I'll talk about Saviour. Common to all of the religions of the world, the one thing they have in common is that there is a Saviour, but it's yourself. You work to save yourself. Whether it's by good works or whether it's by education or self-reflection or self-improvement or whether it's divorcing your ego or separating yourself from your desires, whatever religion you want to talk about, the common factor is self-salvation. In Christianity, there is also a saviour, obviously, Jesus, and we all need a saviour, but it's not us. It's him. He is the one who has been provided. So let me say three quick things about him as saviour. One, Jesus is our saviour God. Titus 2.13 says, our great God and saviour, Jesus Christ. The words saviour, save, salvation occur all the way throughout the New Testament and they point to the Lord Jesus. That's what the angel said to the shepherds. Unto you this day in the city of David, a saviour has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Mark, Matthew 1.21, you'll call him Joseph, you'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's what Simeon said when Jesus went to the temple as a little baby to be dedicated. God promised a saviour and announced the arrival of the saviour. And Jesus the saviour does two things. He saves 
many people. He is our saviour and he is everyone's saviour. Every age, every nation, every race, every culture, every tribe, every language, he is the saviour. Christianity has been accused, and it is correct to say, that we, it is an exclusive religion. Jesus made the very clear and offensive statement, but it's a true statement, that he is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through him. It's exclusive. Doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter how kind you are, if you don't know Jesus, you won't get in. It's exclusive. But Christianity is also inclusive in that while Jesus is the only way, it's the way for everyone. No one is excluded. Men, women, regardless of age, gender, intelligence, gifts, nationality, culture, language, creed, doesn't matter. He is the saviour. Inclusive for everyone who repents and who believes. He's the saviour of the Jews, saviour of the church, he's the saviour of the world. He's the saviour of the lost. And we are all lost. Only some of us don't know it. He is the saviour of sinners. And we are all sinners. Only some of us don't admit it. Jesus is only the saviour for those who will admit that they are lost, that they are sinners, that they are guilty. Only the saviour for those who admit it and ask God to forgive them. The Bible promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Without Jesus, no salvation. Without Jesus, people believe, your friends, your families, my friends and my families who are not yet believers, they believe they will be saved by their goodness by their good deeds, by their kindnesses, by their niceness, that they will do more good things than bad things. It's what they think, and it's incorrect thinking. They're being spiritually deceived by the evil one because the Bible teaches us no one is good. We're all bad. It's just that some people are badder than others. And we compare ourselves to others, and of course we're always in the better class, aren't we? But the reality is that we're all tainted, we're all broken, we are all sinners and we all need Jesus because there is no other saviour. Not only is the saviour who saves many people, he is the saviour who saves from many things. He saves us from our sin and more. He saves us from spiritual death. He saves us from Satan and his rule in our life. He saves us from God's wrath but he saves us in any other area and dimension of our life. I've seen Jesus change marriages. I've seen Jesus change a man's life where he made this statement. I have seen Jesus perform a miracle. I said, what was the miracle? And he said, I've seen Jesus turn beer into furniture. And I said, excuse me? He said, I've seen Jesus turn beer into furniture. He used to live in a lower socioeconomic environment, but he was an alcoholic. And he was spending all of his money, his wages, every week on booze, on his beer. And the kids and the wife and the family were suffering. And they didn't have adequate furniture because he was wasting his money. Through a process of time, and God in his mercy changes this man, becomes a Christian. And he cuts out the alcoholism, stops spending his money on beer. Now has money for food and for furniture. 
He says, I've seen Jesus turn beer into furniture. He still does. He can transform your life. He can help with your marriage. He can help with your relationships. He can help with your issues. He can help with your burdens, your struggles. You have to bring them to him. Is it a guarantee that he will do what you want him? No. He's sovereign Lord. He works his purposes out. I've seen Jesus change people's lives dramatically and he saves people from their sin. I've seen Jesus work with people and he saves people as they travel through their struggles. And I even know stories, but I don't know them personally. But I know stories of where Jesus works with us, with our struggles, with our deformities. And I'll give you two names. Uh, Joni Erickson Tater. God works powerfully through her broken life. And Nick Vujusek. I may not have said his name right. You know, the guy has no arms, no legs. Powerful testimony. Not healed, but delivered in attitude and perspective and is living a transformed life as a follower of Jesus. Jesus can do that in your life. What are you struggling with? What's an issue for you? Bring it to him. He is the saviour. He is the one who comes to deliver. Lord Jesus, deliver me from this. And if not from it, give me the strength to go through it. And maybe even you will use this in my brokenness to honour yourself. That's the perspective. He is the saviour. God wants to meet you. And he wants to know you personally. And he sent Jesus to make the introduction. And Jesus is Lord and saviour. He is Lord over sickness, nature, demons, death and sin. Do you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? And God is at work. Do you recognise Jesus as your Lord? Then surrender and cooperate with him. Obey all that he requires and love and honour him. And Jesus is our saviour God. He'll save many people and he'll save them from many things. Is he your saviour? Is there something you need him to deliver you from? Bring it to him. That's what he wants. Let's pray together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful plan of salvation and for your kindness and grace to us. Thank you, Lord, that you want to know us and that you've taken the first steps. Thank you for sending Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you are Lord and you are Saviour. We would want to surrender to you, to commit ourselves to being available and obedient. And Lord, your Saviour, forgive us for our sin. Deliver us from our issues or our struggles, our attitudes or our weaknesses. Shape us that we can be a tool in your hand. May your sovereign will be worked out in our life that other people are saved and that you are glorified. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your beautiful name. Amen.